Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm in the remote recording studio today with my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, I spoke with Catherine Ma about her latest novel, The Chinese Groove, which is, as we were talking about in the conversation, a kind of Dickensian, Horatio-Algerian type take on the Chinese immigrant story. So we have at the center of the novel a young man who is coming from China to the U.S. to kind of make his life. And Mm -hmm. he believes that he will be supported by his rich uncle, who owns an amazing department store that is Mm. the best in all of San Francisco. And he has nothing but his ticket to basically be written into the stars. Of course, it doesn't work out that way, as we can already kind of figure out. The uncle is not rich, and our heroic narrator has to kind of make his way in a new world amid a variety of challenges. But he's kind of very plucky, and that's the kind of Dickensian or Horatio Alger type theme, where it's like a a plucky guy who makes his way despite hardship and is ultimately just a good, moral, and sweet person. Let me tell you what I've learned as a, as a fellow immigrant, though not Chinese, that you. I was never... literally going to ask you this. Yeah, <laughs> you never trust a rich uncle. <laughs> <laughs> they, they will always disappoint you. So, so he did make a mistake there, but it does take time to learn that as a lesson. Took me at least till after college to to learn not to trust, not to trust a seemingly wealthy uncle. So. That's my take. So the Chinese groove, the title, basically refers to a kind of unspoken but understood rule or kind of law of the universe that people that share either a family with you or a nationality or a race with you will help you. So it's this kind of idea Mm -hmm. that there's a, a solidarity in diaspora, for example, that you can always rely on to make your way through. And and part of it is also exchanging favors, saving face. Is there a kind of Russian or Georgian equivalent of that? Or is it like, girl, everybody's out for themselves? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. You know, actually, recently, my mom and I were talking about when we first moved here. You know, I was a kid, I was like seven. And we had these Ukrainian neighbors who, mm. and it was just me and my mom. And you know, my mom said, oh, I would not have survived without them. We just met because we were neighbors. They lived downstairs. They had a, mm. a daughter similar, similarly aged to me. And yeah, I do think we would not have survived without that family who were not family to us. They were not friends, but really became super close because we kind of just, we ended up kind of looking out for each other. They watched me. The grandmother watched me on days when my mom had to, you know, work. Mm. And my mom watched their daughter when they had to do something. And I think they kind of showed her the lay of the land and helped her figure out, you know, Queens and and here's where you buy food and, and just kind of this, I think the sort of basics of like survival in this new place. So yeah, I think it, I do think it's, I think it's true and it's real. And though at the same time, I, I do feel like one of the things that probably defines some immigrant experiences is like just the drive to survive and so mm, so i mm-hmm. so i do think that there's there's also you know survive at all costs but at least in in that personal way yeah i do think there is a groove i think there's a groove 
All right, well, let's get into the groove and get right to that <laughs> conversation. Okay, let's do it. Just a quick full disclosure, my husband, Dan Lopez, was the editor for Catherine's book. We have Catherine Ma with us on the line today. Catherine is the author of the novel, The Year She Left Us, a New York Times Editor's Choice Award recipient and one of NPR's Great Reads of the Year for 2014. She's also the author of the short story collection, All That Work and Still No Boys, which was winner of the Iowa Short Fiction Award. But she's joining us today from her home in San Francisco to discuss her most recent novel, The Chinese Groove. That book follows protagonist Ji Lu Zhang, who goes by Shelley, which is easier for me to say anyways, as he leaves his home in China's Yunnan province to make his future with a rich uncle in San Francisco. But Shelley's journey is a comedy of errors. His uncle, first of all, is not rich. <laughs> and the storied department store in San Francisco that's much lauded by his vicious aunties back in China has in fact long been sold. And our buoyant hero's prospects are starting to look grim at the top of the novel. But with his indefatigable optimism, compassion, and determination, Shelley works to change his fortunes, repair the fractured bonds of family in San Francisco and Yunnan province, and make a life for himself. The Chinese Groove is at once a harrowing immigrant tale and a humorous romp through cultural misunderstandings, the everyday negotiations of romance and family dynamics, and the power of belief that helps us make our way through the world without it breaking us. Welcome to the show, Catherine. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much. So I think we have to start this by getting a bit of a definition on the table about what the Chinese groove is. The Chinese groove is both a hope and a hazard for Shelley. He has this belief, nurtured by his father, that there is a kind of unspoken bond between what he calls countrymen, other Chinese living in the greater diaspora. And Shelley believes that those cultural bonds are wordlessly understood between countrymen, and they are going to give him a kind of security blanket as he sets forth on this adventure. There's so many unknowns for him. He has no prospects, he has no money, he has no economic opportunity, but he has, he thinks, a kind of safety net in the Chinese group. It's a hazard as well. He's putting a lot of faith in this amorphous idea, this sort of unrealistic hope, and he relies on it in ways that get him into trouble in the book. And that's part of the, the fun of the book and part of his journey. Is the Chinese groove, is it a real thing or is this kind of a general vibe or something that you've given a title? I have not heard it described in any particular way. I'm trying to give language to something that I have felt and observed in my own life. Sometimes I feel like there's a kind of unspoken communication between me and strangers who are also like me of Chinese descent. Maybe that's a kind of optimism or naivete on my part. Maybe it's just hope. It's just an aspiration. But there are times when I do feel like there is a kind of understanding that passes between people of like background, of like race, of like ethnicity. And it, it's both a comfort, but it can get us into trouble because we're not, maybe we're not using words as the people in the book do find out. The family members are very poor at communicating with each other. 
they think they understand one another, but without doing the hard work of really speaking their feelings and talking to one another, misunderstandings not only occur, but fester and lead to problems, lead to estrangements. So I think Shelley, in giving us this concept of the Chinese group, is allowing us to explore just how just how strong are those bonds between family members and between people of like background. I find this general theme throughout the book of what goes unsaid, or we might say it's the kind of different masks that one wears in front of family members, to be, even though it's very specific to Shelley's experience in the kind of Chinese and Chinese American diaspora, it felt, I mean, at least to a kid who grew up between kind of Jewish family with a heavy Irish Catholic influence, that felt like very familiar territory. The kind of, oh, well, this is the story about my life that I'm going to tell my aunt or my grandmother, but I might tell my brother something slightly different. But can you talk a little bit about the the tension for Shelley, which is about doing something that is difficult, which is breaking away from family. So at the beginning of the book, Shelley and his father are very close and Shelley's mother has died. And so there's this empty hole in the center of the family and Shelley feels guilt about going to pursue his dreams. And in some ways his father would prefer him to stay home, but because his mother's dying wish was that her child go make a big life elsewhere, he's kind of pushed towards America and an America that he imagines where poets are making, you know, lots of money and all kinds of stuff. That's part of why he's called Shelley is that he um, is taking English lessons and loves poetry and is named for the poet Shelley. So can you talk a little bit about where the inspiration for this character came from? There are many points of origin for this book, many mothers and fathers, if you will. But there was one point of origin that was very important to me early on. And it's interesting that you couch this, you frame it, Eric, in terms of family, because that, that is from which the story sprung. So quite a number of years ago, in 1999, I was very fortunate. I was able to accompany my parents on a really profound trip to China. My parents are immigrants from China. My father from Yunnan province, as my hero Shelley is, my mother from Shanghai. My father was returning to his hometown for the first time in decades. And he had not been permitted to return to his hometown when China first reopened because his hometown is very close to the border of Vietnam. And Westerners were not being allowed to go to that area of China at first, you know, soon after Nixon went and soon after China reopened. But then by the 90s, it was possible for my father to go home and I was able to go with him. And you can imagine what a what an incredible, heartbreaking and also joyous occasion that was. Those two emotions side by side in this big family reunion, the heartbreak over the fact that people had been separated for so long and the joy at my father finally being out to return home. At one family banquet, there was an older gentleman in my father's generation who was seated at the head table. And of course, that was a place of honor to be seated next to my parents at the head table. But no one was talking to this man. Everyone was ignoring him. 
very deliberately ignoring him. And I couldn't figure out who he was or what the situation was. One told my father when we got back to the hotel, Dad, who was that guy? Who was that man? Why was no one talking to him? My father was made extremely uncomfortable by the question. And he just snapped at me, which was very unlike my father. And he said, he's the black sheep of the family. Later, I asked my mother the same question, and she gave me a little more information. She didn't say much, but I understood that he was the son of a concubine wife of my father's father. That's exactly what Shelley is. Right? I did borrow. I borrowed that for the book. Shelley's ancestor is the son of a concubine wife. And this image stayed with me, this idea that this man was both within the family, invited to the feast, you know, seated at the table of honor, and yet assiduously avoided by everyone. And I, th- I began to think of that as a kind of metaphor for the kind of double identity that an immigrant, for example, may live. You're both within and without a community. What's it like to be in a family or in a community or in a society where you're tolerated, but you are made invisible. And that was one of the origins of the book. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that you treat these, let's call it like kind of inside the family ostracized folks. There seems to me on the one hand, it's so double-sided. The scene that you're describing of this family member that you saw is it once a moment of inclusion, but also of really cruel, to my perspective, a very cruel exclusion. And this happens for a number of the characters in the book. There's rifts often between fathers and sons that is about either, in the case of Shelley's, you know, his uncle, it's actually a cousin several times removed, I think. The uncle has had a falling out with his father because for a variety of reasons that I won't necessarily get into so as not to give it away, that there has been a death in that family that caused a major rift between father and son. And there's also the beginnings of a feeling of a rift between father and son with regards to Shelley and his father. And I'm wondering where those dynamics came from and why you wanted to play with them. The book is at heart both funny and sad, and the sadness arises from grief at the loss of a family member, grief at being separated from the family. There is a kind of mourning that takes place to the entire book. And I wanted the book to be able to operate on multiple levels. It's a funny book because Shelley is the narrator and he's speaking to us in a very energized, very entertaining voice. He loves language. He loves storytelling. His father is a storyteller and his mother was too before she passed. And so he takes great pleasure in language, but at the same time, there's a kind of river of sadness running beneath all their feet, and that's part of the tension of the novel. You know, another huge source of tension within the family as represented in the novel is kind of centered around what we might say are, I mean, in some cases, very clearly are interracial relationships, but another way that we can think about them are relationships outside of a specific domestic and or diaspora Chinese community. So this would be, for example, the rich uncle has married a Jewish woman, right? And so that's something that the aunties back at home don't like. Equally, they don't like Shelley and his father because they descend from this third wife concubine lineage that is shameful. 
again, from their eyes. It's I'm, I'm not taking that on. Can you talk about that? Because on the one hand, that is very much the story of diaspora across cultures, right? It's about hybridity, mixture, adapting old traditions to a new context. Can you talk about how that functions within the kind of life world of your characters, this kind of desire to go into a bigger world, but also feeling extremely judged by family who want to keep things, let's say, more conservatively the same, adhering to tradition and the way things have always been done? Yes. And in this way, this question reflects one aspect of the novel, which is it is a kind of version of the utopian novel. Shelley tells us a story, a famous fable in Chinese culture called the legend of the peach blossom forest. And it's this idea that there is a kind of Shangri-La, a sort of perfect land where everyone gets along. When Shelley first leaves home and heads to San Francisco, he and his father envision that San Francisco is a kind of utopia. It's going to be a sort of peach blossom land where everybody gets along. And part of that is the multiculturalism of San Francisco, every kind of ethnicity, every kind of racial group, every kind of sexual orientation. And of course, it's both an aspiration and it's a complete failure because we are not there in that utopian land. There is no such thing as a peach blossom forest. And Shelley comes to San Francisco and at first he's he's really taken with the idea that all these people of many different backgrounds, both within his own family, extended family, the relatives he barges in on in San Francisco, and the larger group of their friends and associates, he first sees it as a sort of perfect world. This is going to be a world where everyone is welcome, including me, the outcast. And gradually, he he begins to realize there's a lot more conflict there. That that comes in part from me being a San Franciscan and watching San Francisco struggle with this idea of, oh, we're such an advanced progressive society and we all get along so beautifully and the reality is far short of that. But also in my own family, you mentioned your family background, which sounds complicated in its own right. I was, my parents are Chinese immigrants. My husband is Jewish. I was raised as a Pennsylvania Quaker by my immigrant parents. Oh my God, amazing. So my, my husband likes to joke that we were married in a Sino-Judeo-Quaker civil ceremony. <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't pack too many more labels into that mouthful. <laughs> and that's part of what Shelley and the family are grappling with throughout the book. And I think this is true universally of so many communities. We have ideals of what we think we are uh, capable of managing, and then you bump up against reality and you understand, oh, life is a lot more complicated than it may seem when we first begin to dream. On the other hand, so we have these really loving, if troubled and flawed characters that kind of coalesce around Shelley, but then we have at least like one character who is kind of clearly a villain, and this would be Cousin Deng, right? So Cousin Deng is back in Yunnan province, at least, again, no spoilers. At the beginning of the novel, that's where he is. And he kind of takes care of Shelley's father or promises to take care of Shelley's father while Shelley is gone. Now, Deng represents 
I think, a different kind of Chinese experience in that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way he's portrayed is that he's an opportunist. And sometimes that opportunism means harming people who one would think should be the closest to him. So it can mean taking advantage of family members. It can mean taking advantage of business deals. He he kind of helps, quote unquote, Shelley early on by giving Shelley jobs to do. But while it's never quite defined, we get the sense that there's some quite shady business, like a kind of import-export situation, if, if you get my drift. So can you talk about, there's a moment also when Shelley's uncle, again, in quotes, that's the word that he uses to describe that relationship, when his uncle Ted describes Deng as a perfect kind of Chinese. And that means that he's an operator, right? So he kind of takes advantage of people and he's always looking to kind of improve. He's ambitious. But at least in this wonderful world of art loving and kind of like compassionate people, he seems like the villainous outlier. So can you talk a little bit about that character and how you see him functioning in the ecosystem that you've built in the novel? Isn't it fun to have an Iago? I it is, yeah. I always, I always love it when there is an Iago. I mean, Dung does take care of Shelley's father. Shelley has left his father behind. I mean, his father wants him to make his mark on the world and helps him to get to the United States, but is bereft that his son has taken him up on this opportunity. And cousin Dung, although he is a villainous character, he is an Iago. He does have his uses and he is doing, he is performing family duties in his way. Mm, okay. So I think that when Shelley's uncle, whose name is Ted, his American uncle, when Ted describes Don as a perfect example of the modern Chinese entrepreneur, it's said with some grudging respect because Don is nimble, he's very good with technology. He understands money, he's ruthless, but he is making his way in a different sort of manner than Shelley. And I think I have some grudging respect for Dong, even though he is hurting other members of the family because Dong, like Shelley, Dong is also a survivor. There are different ways mm -hmm. to survive migration, to survive separation and disruption, and they sort of play off of one another. There are other parallels in the book. We have the American uncle Ted and his older father Henry with whom he's estranged. And then we have Shelley and his father left home in China, whose relationship is strained by the fact that not only has Shelley left him, but Shelley begins to feed him a packet of lies about how well he's doing. He's not doing well at all in the United States. He's struggling. He has no job. He has no money. He, his uncle and aunt have refused to house him and have thrown him out after just two weeks. And we see this these two pairs of fathers and sons and the way in which they reflect upon one another. It adds another dimension to the story of looking at relationships between fathers and sons and how those might go. And they actually end up in rather different places, those two father-son pairs. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Catherine Ma, author of The Chinese Groove. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. 
I have Curtis White on the line. Curtis White's most recent book is Transcendent, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse. And he's here to give us a book recommendation. I have two books actually for you that I read very, very recently. At first, I was surprised that I liked the books as much as I did, and then really surprised to see how much the two books had in common. The first is The Education of Henry Adams by Henry Adams, published in 1905. And the second is The Seven-Story Mountain by Thomas Merton, published in 1948. So what the two books have in common immediately is that they're autobiographies on autobiographies. The thing that is surprising about the two of them, it seems to me, is that they share a very important thing, which is that they were both thoroughly alienated from their culture at that time. And the other interesting thing, well, they sought refuge from these cultures in two ways. Adams by going into the humanities and the arts. And Merton sought refuge, of course, in the church and eventually ended up as a Trappist monk. But Henry Adams, to begin with him, was in the Adams family, the Adams family, not the- <laughs> Not the, the Adams the family. American, the American Adams family, not the TV show. So his great-grandfather was John Adams, and his grandfather was John Quincy Adams, and his father was ambassador to England during the Civil War. So he spent his whole life at the center of power without having any particular aspirations to political success himself. He was a, strictly an observer, but one an observer. Really great sort of cameo appearances by, you know, Abraham Lincoln and the other presidents of the time, and Hayes, the Secretary of State. And so the thing about him was that he noticed things. He was one of those who Henry James says, upon whom nothing is lost. So he's an incredible perspective on that. The other thing that both Adams and Merton did to try to deal with the sense of alienation was both of them have an incredibly rich prose style, sort of prose style that you just don't see much anymore. It's a great pleasure to read these books. You know, just the role of the prose is a pleasure. But here's a little very, very short passage from Henry Adams. He's at Lincoln's inauguration ball. He refers to himself in the third person always, he. So he is Henry Adams. He saw Mr. Lincoln at once at the melancholy function called an inaugural ball. Of course, he looked anxiously for a sign of character. He saw a long, awkward figure, a plain plowed face, a mind absent in part and in part evidently worried by white kid gloves. Mm. Features that expressed... <laughs> I don't think he made it anything kinky there. Uh, features that expressed neither self-satisfaction nor any other familiar Americanism. No man living needed so much education as the new president, but that all the education he could get would not be enough. Wow. Yeah. That's my kind of American history. That's great. Yeah, it's so vivid. I mean, so you can take pleasure in it for that. The deeper side is the psychological side, you know, of this thorough alienation. And obviously much the same can be said of, of Merton. You know, I'm not uh, a Christian, and I'm deeply skeptical of, of Catholic monasticism. So I didn't begin the book thinking I would like it all that much, but I loved it. And that's because it's, it's so readable. It really flows. And what kind of background was Merton running away from just out of curiosity? 
Well, he had a troubled youth. He was an orphan at a fairly early age. And once his parents were dead and he no longer had any tethers on him, he had a very rough life, most of which he alludes to it, but he doesn't go into much detail. But I take it that he was uh, a bit of a womanizer and uh, drinker and partier. So it's kind of like uh, St. Augustine's confessions in that way. So the first part of the book is about what an unlikely candidate he was to be a monk in the Catholic Church. His storytelling ability is wonderful. Mm. Even if you can't go with him to you know some of his religious beliefs, you still have this flow of language. He was a great stylist. And so and, and he had his dislike of the world around him was even more strident than Adams. So he's talking now about Cambridge, England, and England in general in this little passage. It seemed to me that Cambridge, and to some extent the whole of England, was pretending with an elaborate and intent and conscious, and perhaps in some cases a courageous effort to act as if it were alive. And it took a lot of acting. It was a vast and complicated charade with expensive and detailed costuming and scenery and a lot of inappropriate songs. And yet the whole thing was so intolerably dull because most of the people were already morally dead, asphyxiated by the steam of their own strong yellow tea, or by the smell of their own pubs and breweries, or by the fungus on the walls of Oxford and Cambridge. Oh my God. Wow. Beat that if you can. How punk. These both sound amazing. Can you tell us the titles of the books and the authors again? The Education of Henry Adams by Henry Adams and The Seven-Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. Both, as much as I can tell, are books that are very rarely read these days, but they're worth reading again. Wow. Well, thank you, Curtis, so much for recommending those. That was Curtis White. His most recent book is Transcendent, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse. Thanks again, Curtis. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Catherine Ma, author of The Chinese Groove. The other thing that I kept thinking about, especially as I was reading the beginning of the novel, is how familiar it seems to certain archetypal kind of British and American tropes. So there's a way in which I think you could read the beginning of The Chinese Groove and be like, oh, this is kind of a remix like Charles Dickens story, right? We have this plucky young guy who he's just going to make it through and he's a good person and he's going to experience some challenges, deal with some Fagin type people, but then he will make his way. Or there was the kind of classic American trope of the Horatio Alger kind of, you know, vibe where it's somebody who's through pluck and hard work is going to pull himself up and make a life for himself. But then, of course, you know, when I was starting to think about the Horatio Alger vibe of the novel, I was thinking actually of Nathaniel West and his novel, A Cool Million, where he kind of viciously, in a very 1930s American <laughs> cultural critic way, pulls him apart so that his kind of, in West's A Cool Million, his Shelley character 
every time he does something that's good and moral, he loses a limb, right? So he sacrifices himself for others and then he gets a glass eye or, you know, so at the end of it, he's just left totally destroyed. And I was terrified throughout this entire novel that that was going to happen to Shelley. And I will, he does suffer. There is a lot of problems and I'm not going to give away the end. But can you talk a little bit about where those kind of tropes, the Algerian hero or the Charles Dickens kind of novel of multifaceted family and the social dynamics, were those present for you as you were writing or not? Thank you so much for noticing that, Eric. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, I am Western educated and my themes and my, I would say my instinct as a writer is really born out of the kind of reading I did throughout my life. This novel does draw on some of those great novels of an earlier era. In fact, in my mind as I was writing it, I had a couple of different myths and iconic stories in my head. Mm. One, as I said, was The Legend of the Peach Blossom Forest, but the other was Voltaire's Candide. Now I am not oh, as yeah. I am not as vicious as Voltaire. I do not put <laughs> Shelley through the kinds of trials and tribulations that Candide goes through. No one loses half a buttock throughout the entire Chinese group. I will spoil it for you and tell you no one loses half a buttock. But this idea of the best of all possible worlds, which is words that are uttered by Shelley, trying to convince himself as things are going bad that he's going to be okay, that does draw from that idea again of the utopian novel. And I'm not the satirist that Voltaire is, but I did bring a sense of maybe, shall we call it, a slightly softer kind of satire to the book in inspecting mores and manners. But it, when I finished the book, when it was in my editor's hands, when I was all done, and we began to think about how to describe the book to the world at large, it suddenly occurred to me, I have written Mansfield Park only with <laughs> Chinese people in the outer sunset district. <laughs> I mean, there is something of Fanny, Fanny Price in Shelley, and that just made me laugh so hard. And you know, the writer is always the last to know what she's done on the page. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. At the top of our conversation, you had been, when you were talking about the Chinese groove, you had said that it is, on the one hand, a kind of enabling fantasy or like a real thing, like a feeling between people who have recently immigrated and those who immigrated a while ago, between people who share some imaginary, to use Benedict Anderson's term, like an imaginary community, right? They have a racial community or affinity, or they have a nationalist affinity. But she said that it can also hurt, you know, or it gets us into trouble and very productive, often hilarious trouble for Shelley. So then where do you come down on something like the Chinese group? I mean, is that, is it just fantasy or is there something real there that, you know, is enabling or disabling, or maybe it is ultimately just both? It's a difficult question for me to answer, because I, I think that the book poses it more as a question than it does as an answer. Is there something to what Shelley believes in? Do we find connection with those of like background? Do we rely on it too much and hope that it will carry us through rough, through rough passage? 
Those are all questions posed by the novel. And I think that the novel allows Shelley to have it both ways. He does get some sucker from his relatives in the end. He does get comfort. He does find community. But he has to learn how to communicate. He has to learn to draw himself out of himself. He has to learn to think about other people in order to get there. He's And he's a young man when he starts the story. He's only 18. When he tells the story, he's a lot older. We do have a retrospective narrator who's looking back. I don't press hard on that. I did not want to overuse that for the purposes of this story because I wanted to keep that freshness, that buoyancy, that optimism in Shelley's voice. Sometimes when you have a retrospective narrator, that person is so wised up that you lose track of who the young person was. And I really wanted to stay in Shelley's, in his youthful demeanor and not have him the wised up older man looking back and explaining to us all the mistakes he made. But we do have Shelley at at a later age. There's a really interesting moment where that kind of narrator consciousness enters in. And that's where there's a way of reading this portion of the book where it's Shelley is just kind of completely misunderstanding what is happening in this new world and is just making all kinds of mistakes and believing in things that are definitely like we can tell as the reader, we're like, oh, yeah, that's definitely not how that's going to work out for you. But Shelley's narrator consciousness kind of intervenes to be like, look, do not believe that this younger me was as unsophisticated as I may appear to be like in this moment. And I thought that was interesting. And it did make me wonder to what extent Shelley's optimism is both kind of a, let's call it like an acculturated ignorance, right? He doesn't know what he can't know because he's been hearing all these stories about the life of his relatives in America in China, right? So there's this gap and people, as we learned throughout the book, are always telling very different stories about what's going on on either side of that divide. But at the same time, he kind of does give us a sense that he knows that things are not the way that he's expecting them to be. And there's a kind of conscious optimism that I think is part of the character. I guess the question that I have for you is, how did you think about Shelley's consciousness? Like, is his optimism in some ways a kind of defense mechanism or is it a cultural, like you just got to put your nose to the grindstone and hope for the best and hard work will always win in the end? Or is it perhaps even, it's hard for me to think that Shelley is cynical, but is there a kind of like cynical optimism that he has? I'd like to think about an answer to that interesting question through this theme of storytelling, because that's a big part of the book. And that is a kind of defense mechanism, I think. We tell ourselves stories in order to give ourselves courage, in order to keep our hopes high, in order to allow us to move forward. And at the same time, Shelley is very conscious that he's telling not only himself a story, he has an audience. He is conscious that he is speaking to an audience. So once in a while, not very often, once in a while, Shelley will address the reader directly. And that's when we have that little bit of slippage that you're talking about, where we see Shelley, oh, he's not a complete naive fool. And he's warning us. 
he's telling us, pay attention here because I do understand this situation a little bit better than you might think. So he's telegraphing some unreliability as a narrator, but he's also tweaking the reader a little bit. He's saying, you are going along here with assumptions that you have brought to the story. And now I'm just going to trip you up a little bit. There's a fun passage where they're at a Lunar New Year dinner. This is appropriate since we're celebrating Lunar New Year now. They're at a scene in a restaurant and they're having a big Lunar New Year meal. Shelley with his uncle Ted and aunt and some friends of theirs. And, you know, it's toward the beginning of the book, but we've already seen this character, the friends, we've seen them already. And then Shelley suddenly addresses the reader directly and says, oh, by the way, that friend of theirs, she's Chinese. She's Chinese-American. Oh, and we haven't been yeah. told that earlier. And so he's sort of testing the reader a little bit. Oh, in your mind, did you know that she was Chinese-American? And he says, I think without guile, he says very candidly, when someone's telling me a story, I assume that the characters are the same race as I am. But let me just make it clear now. Oh, yeah, I didn't, I forgot to earlier mention she's actually Chinese American. I'm just curious. Well, it'd be fun for the readers when they come to that moment to ask themselves, oh, how did I see that person? Did I think that person was white? Did I see that person as a person of color? Did I think that person was Chinese American? I don't know. I don't know. But Shelley, that's a way to play with having a first-person narrator. I mean, you got to get some advantage out of having a first-person narrator because it's darn hard to write. I had no idea how hard it was going to work. My last novel was told in alternating viewpoints. Yeah. And when I went to write this novel, I thought, I want to set myself a technical challenge. I want to try to do something I haven't done before. I want to try to make it more interesting for me. I'm going to try to tell an entire book in one point of view. I'm going to make it first person. Oh my gosh, it's actually very hard to write a whole novel staying in one point of view. And this is where perhaps we think back to Dickens. Because unless you have that character in every single scene, right, right, then how do you show anything that happens without that character's eyes and ears on it? And it can get, I think, a little flat if you have that character in every single scene. So then I had to pull out all the old tricks <laughs> borrowing from, you know, Dickens and the Victorian novelists and plenty of contemporary American novelists. Oh, I better have an eavesdrop on this scene or, oh, I better have a newspaper article here or have an imaginary conversation. I think of Updike in one of his novels, was it the Gertrude and Claudius novel, where he had this long section of the novel where the, the narrator just imagines an entire long series of sequences of events, the narrator has no knowledge of what actually happened, but just says, well, I'm just going to make it up for you now. And uh, <laughs> there are all sorts of things that writers have to do to get around the choices that we make at the beginning of crafting a book. Right. Because with the first person narrator, it's like the knowledge that can be communicated to the reader is strictly filtered through what is possible for the narrator to know. Like when you're not omniscient, it's like exactly as you said, you know, there has to be a, an overheard conversation or something like that that helps to bring things together. And then, you know, as we kind of wrap up, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was a central tension for the novel, I think in a big macro way, is how one lives a life 
for oneself and on one's own terms, and how one honors the way that a life has been given to you and has emerged from your family, right? So there's this desire for freedom, but then also a desire to stick with, let's say, the family, which then complicates the possibility of freedom. And we see this in you know, Shelley's desire to kind of make a life for himself, but still feeling the obligation and genuine love for his father. Deng deals with that in his own ways. There's also one of the friends that you're talking about is Kate and her wife, Orit. So Kate is Chinese American, Orit is Israeli, and they have, you know, they're a lesbian relationship with a child, Leo. And that caused, as we learn, tension with Kate's father, also tension because Kate and Ted were imagined to be what the pair was going to be. And then both of them not only married people who were not Chinese or were not ABC, American-born Chinese, but were, you know, Jewish, lesbian, and so kind of all over the place. So how do you see or kind of how do you think your characters process these, let's say, dueling commitments to oneself and one's personal freedom, and then one's commitment or obligation to family or the place that one is from? This is the great question. This is the great dilemma of living, I think, Mm -hmm. within a family. How do we love our family, honor our parents and our ancestors, but create a life of one's own? How does one stake one's own territory? without alienating others. How is it that this old man and whom I saw in China could sit at the head table, be within the family, and yet be despised by the family? That's a very frightening prospect to me, that you you may stay within the family and have that sense of security, but yet you know, be disdained by the rest of the family, which would be an unimaginable way to live. I think in this novel, The Chinese Groove, I am allowing each character to grope their way toward their own answer to those questions. They end up in different circumstances. They do find communities and families of their own, but some are selected families, you know, intentional families, and some are the families that they're born into, and some are families that are remade. But one of the great, you know, some people might feel that Shelley is unrealistic. I think not. I think Shelley is actually, although very optimistic, he's also a pragmatist. But perhaps if there's anything a tad unrealistic about the book is that the family does find its way toward change. I mean, families can change. They can change. But it's hard for families to change. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard for families to be elastic enough to expand and contract with the deeds of its family members. That's part of the pleasure of the novel to see how each one of these characters, not just the main characters, but some of the side characters too, how they all make their way in life and find a kind of loving circle in which they can reside. I think that's a beautiful place to end. They just I that's exactly what fiction one of the many things fiction can do is show us those alternate ways to be or at the very least walk us through 
the quagmire of trying to negotiate that gap between obligation and bond and commitment and then personal freedom. So I think that is so beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Catherine Ma, author most recently of The Chinese Groove. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.